there's this place, a place where we dive and delve into the wonders of our surroundings, where the law is consilience, a jumping together of knowledge, forming a bridge that strongly connects the sciences, the arts, the humanities, a place where natural systems and human systems coexist in harmony, where connections are sought between humans and nature, humans and humans, nature and nature. And yes, a place where land, the living layers of earth, is an equal member of the community with rights just like humans. In this special place, the sense of wonder is our sustenance. You've just arrived at the land health ecosystem. And tonight, as we delve into the land health ecosystem, we're going to be talking about a couple species, but it's going to get us into a whole ecosystem way of thinking, way of discussing, and towards the end, for me, a way of meandering, hopefully in a way that, that elicits positive um, meandering of your own. So starting out, did you ever think much about, about birds, okay? Like, we're lucky enough so far that, uh, that, that there are birds around us. And, you know, right now they're, they're pretty plentiful. If you check uh, on what's going on with the state of birds, you'll realize that as plentiful as they are, um, that ecologists and, and biologists that study these kind of things are very alarmed that since the 1970s, bird populations have, have dropped significantly. Um, but more on that kind of uh, sad state of affairs a little bit later. But, um, but just think about like the wonders of birds in general. You know, obviously birds have this ability to fly, um, which, is, which is pretty unusual. Just about all birds are, are, are really deft flyers. Um, we sometimes think about birds and we're not, we're not sure where to put them because you, you learn early on in biology that there's five groupings, major groupings of vertebrates and uh, mammals are kind of on the evolutionary top of that grouping. But birds like us can regulate their own body temperature, which is a, you know, a key adaptation um, compared to the other three groups of, of vertebrates. Um, birds are pretty smart animals and uh, you know, they, you know, on the surface, they, you, you, some of them can mimic so well that they can even mimic the human voice. Um, it's that that might be a cool little feat that they do, but uh, you know something like a mockingbird or an eastern um, catbird, uh, they're able to um, to mock other animals. You know, so that that can that can be a useful skill. Um, you know, or mimic other anim animals that that can be a useful skill at times. Birds have charisma. Birds. Um, they might not think they do, but but we humans do. There's a multi-billion dollar industry of bird watching. So like birds definitely, compared to like most other groupings of species, species you know, you don't find people, you don't find like droves and droves of people that go out to study or, or just kind of observe amphibians or, um, or, or reptiles. But, uh, but birds are different. You have birders, you know, just birding in their own backyard. You have birders that are trying to like, add to their list of life species um, go, traveling all over. So birds really, you know, there's some kind of connection there between birds and humans. So just think about that, you know, like kind of like the wonders of, of, of birds for, you know, for the time being. Another concept to think about is, is in terms of numbers. And think, think about like, what does the number 1 billion mean to you? Not 1 million, certainly not any order of a thousand, um, but what, you know, like, one billion, it's a pretty big number. And so when you think of, it, of numbers of things, be they alive or non-alive, um, a billion is, is a lot. Uh, right now, our Earth is uh, burdened with about, I think around last count is about 7.8 billion of us, right? It's a, it's a lot of human specimens to be to be um walking around the, our continents and the, the way we're doing and we're we're certainly um leaving our mark but uh but think about you know like what that number means you know like a billion so so thinking about the concept of birds their charisma their adaptations thinking about the the, the number a billion Think back not that long ago, and I'm saying really not that long ago, not that much more than a century ago, th there was a species of bird um, 
that numbered in the billions, not just one billion, by, by counts that, that, that date back, the um, scientists believe that there were between three to and five billion of one single species of birds, the most plentiful bird species in all of North America. Um, the scientific name is Ectopistes migratorius, which is a totally, in scientific names, the names don't always make sense, but uh, in just plain English, um, like uh, um, where those words are derived, um, you can hear the migratorius, but that, it, that it kind of means migrating wanderer. The common name of that bird is called the passenger pigeon. And uh, the passenger pigeon was this amazing species of bird that was more plentiful than, 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 any, than any other bird. And right through the, through the 1800s, this bird, just about through the, 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 all of the 1800s, this bird was extremely plentiful throughout North America. And the bird was, so, was such a powerful presence on the landscape that, that when, when it would fly in its flocks, at times it could literally block out the, sun, the sunlight. Um, you know, no exaggeration there. Um, it literally, you know, you, th th there are all kinds of accounts of shadows and, and of, of blocked out sun because thousands upon thousands of these passenger pigeons, which are very social birds, would be flying together in, in their flocks, moving across the sky, usually migrating from a food source to maybe a, a, a place where they're going to go mate. And, um, and lo and behold, you know, they, they, they could block out the sunlight. Um, a real strong, strong presence on the landscape. So um, this, this amazing bird, um, all of about 15 or 16 inches, is also a beautiful bird. Um, it was native, it, it, it would have been plentiful in Philadelphia. It basically liked to hang out in what's called the Eastern Deciduous Forest, which is our biome. That's the biome of Pennsylvania. It's the biome of, um, of much of the United States east of the Mississippi River. And um, they would migrate over to the, around the, the areas in, in uh, southern Canada, northern and the northern United States, um, to to uh, which is where they would go to mate near around the Great Lakes. Um, these birds are, were beautiful. Um, the male bird, you know, in addition to having like you know various colors of of gray, maybe some tan um, and some black spots, it it had a it it, it had the um, like a beautiful neck that was, you know, described differently in term as iridescent bronze, kind of a purpley violet hue. Um, when you look at drawings of the bird, you know, it, it, it radiates. So it's just a, just a flat out gorgeous bird. And, um, you know, had this amazing ability to fly like a hundred kilometers. That's like over 60 miles an hour. Um, it could do that as it migrated, but, but it also could like do that in an agile fashion throughout the forest. It primarily liked to hang out in forests because it was an eater of what, what is called mast trees, M-A-S-T. Um, but uh, oaks, you know, produce masts of acorns and that was a primary food source. When there was such a thing as American chestnut in our forests, another big food source. The American beech, which still proliferates in a lot of our forests, same thing. So, so the bird ate, was a healthy eater it ate, um, you know, nuts, tree nuts, which are really good. They were good for the birds. They're really good for us. They got lots of essential fatty acids in them. It would also eat things like blueberries and other fruits, and it might, and it would certainly grab worms and caterpillars. But it was, it was an eater of nuts, and um, which is why it came to rely on the eastern deciduous forests around us. Um, and so, um, this bird was really, really abundant you know, for thousands upon thousands of years, right up into the 1800s. And um, like right up until just after the time that Europeans came to, to, to colonize North America. Um, and then incredibly, 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 in about 10 to 20 years, the, in, the, in, the late, in, in, the, in the later decades of the 1800s, the birds numbers just plummeted. And they basically, did something that nobody would have ever thought that these birds that, that you know, again, were in the billions, we're talking, um, they basically disappeared. And by um, 1914, um, the last known passenger pigeon 
it actually by this time had a name and that's what we humans tend to do. We get emotional about things often when it's too late, but uh, Martha, the last known passenger pigeon died in the Cincinnati Zoo. Um, so there, there was just like an incredible story took place in which these birds, they came, they, by the way, they, they, they learned to, um, to live hand in hand with Native Americans. Native Americans did alter forests, but they also respected the birds and they did some planting that actually helped the birds. So there was really, you know, while, while Native Americans did move things around from a land perspective, there's not any appreciable effect that, that, um, that, that people that study this think that, that Native Americans had on, uh, on, the, on the overall population of the birds. It was really um, Europeans coming here. It was a product of two major things, hunting and, um, and then combined with habitat destruction. That habitat destruction was generally the conversion of things like forests um, into farmland. And when you knock down a lot of forest, you knock down a lot of oak trees. You knock, you knock down a lot of food sources. So, uh, so just in a matter of decades, humans had this uncanny ability to, um, to take a species that numbered in the billions and get it down basically to zero. If you wanna see the bird today, you can go into Philly and you can, go, you can go see some. You can go see some in the beautiful dioramas of the Academy of Natural Sciences. Um, you can go to New York City and see them in the uh, Museum of Natural History. Um, so that's, that's, what, that's what they've been reduced to in very much modern times. So um, there's, there, like what we do as humans is just kind of an incredible thing. There's all kinds of things that lately have been written um, about, about the demise of the passenger pigeon. Um, and there's all kinds of wondrous things how people could go out and basically like they would just, you, you could take a shotgun and shoot it up at the sky when they were passing over. You didn't aim at the bird, you just aimed at the flock and then they would just fall down. They were so plentiful. Well, 50,000 were often killed in a single day. So they became a cheap food source. They became fun for hunting. They just became like, you know, this as if they were some non-animate thing that you could shoot at. Um, but, but nobody ever thought that they would ever die out. Well, they did. And so I want to read to you. There's, a, you know, one of my favorite um, ecologists, and also philosophers is Aldo Leopold, who wrote the um, seminal work called Sand County Almanac. So Aldo Leopold was born in, uh, I believe, um, 1887. So he, he, was, he was born, little did he know at the time, right at the demise of passenger pigeons, right, at the, right, right during one of the decades when they were just, you know, their numbers were just plummeting. And, and as he became a forester and later a um, like really like a naturalist and an ecologist, and then later, later, towards the end of his life, really like a like a philosopher about ecology, um, writing such things on, on the importance of a land ethic, um, right towards towards the, the near the end of his life, because he died, unfortunately, at a relatively young age in his in his mid 60s um, in 1948. He wrote about um, a monument that was built in Wisconsin, and I'm talking like a statue kind of a monument. Um, there was a monument to the passenger pigeon, and um, and so like and, and and that monument was built in 1947. He died in 1948. But just sit back and listen to this essay that he writes. Um, how prescient it really is, as he even calls to, you know, calls to our attention things like nylon, meaning, um, which was like a, a, a you know, DuPont product and, 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 uh, and makes reference to like technology that made, that made guns and war possible. And he went and he weaves that all into this beautiful but sad essay called On a Monument to the Pigeon. And it's referring to um, a monument that's placed in Wyalusing State Park in Wisconsin by the Wisconsin Society for Ornithology. It was dedicated on the 11th of May, 1947. We have erected a monument to commemorate the funeral of a species. It symbolizes our sorrow. We grieve because no living man will see again the onrushing phalanx of victorious birds, sweeping a path for spring across the March skies, chasing the defeated winter from all the woods and prairies of Wisconsin. Men who 
still live today who in their youth remember pigeons. Trees still live who in their youth were shaken by a living wind. But a decade hence, only the oldest oaks will remember and at long last, only the hills will know. There will always be pigeons in books and in museums, but these are effigies and images, dead to all hardships and to all delights. Book pigeons cannot dive out of a cloud to make the deer run for cover or clap their wings in thunderous applause of massed laden woods. Book pigeons cannot breakfast on new mown wheat in Minnesota and dine on blueberries in Canada. They know no urge of seasons. They feel no kiss of sun, no lash of wind and weather. They live forever by not living at all. Our grandfathers were less well housed, well fed, well clothed than we are. The strivings by which they bettered their lot are also those which deprived us of pigeons. Perhaps we now grieve because we are not sure in our hearts that we have gained by the exchange. The gadgets of industry bring us more comforts than the pigeons did, but do they add as much to the glory of the spring? It is a century now since Darwin gave us the first glimpse of the origin of species. We know now what was unknown to all the preceding caravan of generations, that men are only fellow voyagers with other creatures in the odyssey of evolution. This new knowledge should have given us by this time a sense of kinship with fellow creatures, a wish to live and let live, a sense of wonder over the magnitude and duration of the biotic enterprise. Above all, we should, in the century since Darwin, have come to know that man, while now captain of the adventuring ship, is hardly the sole object of its quest, and that his prior assumptions to this effect arose from the simple necessity of whistling in the dark. These things I say should have come to us. I fear they have not come to many. For one species to mourn the death of another is a new thing under the sun. The Cro-Magnon who slew the last mammoth thought only of stakes. The sportsman who shot the last pigeon thought only of his prowess. The sailor who clubbed the last auk thought of nothing at all. But we who have lost our pigeons mourn the loss. Had the funeral been ours, the pigeons would hardly have mourned us. In this fact, rather than in Mr. DuPont's nylons or Mr. Vannevar's bushes bombs, lies objective evidence of our superiority over the beasts. This monument, perched like a duck hawk on this cliff, will scan this wide valley, watching through the days and years. For many a march, it will watch the geese go by, telling the river about clearer, colder, lonelier waters on the tundra. For many in April, it will see the redbuds come and go. And for many in May, the flush of oak blooms on a thousand hills. Questing wood ducks will search these basswoods for hollow limbs, golden prothonotaries, will shake golden pollen from the river willows. Egrets will pose on these sloughs in August. Plovers will whistle from September skies. Hickory nuts will plop into October leaves and hail will rattle in November woods. But no pigeons will pass, for there are no pigeons, save only this flightless one graven in bronze on this rock. Tourists will read this inscription, but their thoughts will not take wing. We are told by economic moralists that to mourn the pigeon is mere nostalgia, that if the pigeoners had not done away with him, the farmers would ultimately have been obliged in self-defense to do so. This is one of those peculiar truths that are valid, but not for the reasons alleged. The pigeon was a biological storm. He was the lightning that played between two opposing potentials of intolerable intensity, the fat of the land and the oxygen of the air. Yearly, the feathered tempest roared up, down, and across the continent, sucking up the laden fruits of forest and prairie, burning them in a traveling blast of life. Like any other chain reaction, a pigeon could survive no diminution of his own furious intensity. When the pigeoners subtracted from his numbers and the pioneers chopped gaps in the continuity of his fuel, his flame guttered out with hardly a sputter or even a wisp of smoke. Today, the oaks still flaunt their burden at the sky, but the feathered lightning is no more. Worm and weevil must now perform slowly and silently the biological task that once drew thunder from the firmament. The wonder is not that the pigeon went out, 
but that he ever survived through all the millennia of pre-Babidian time. The pigeon loved his land. He lived by the intensity of his desire for clustered grape and bursting beech nut and by his contempt of miles and seasons. Whatever Wisconsin did not offer him gratis today, he sought and found tomorrow in Michigan or Labrador or Tennessee. His love was for present things and these things were present somewhere. To find them required only the free sky and the will to ply his wings. To love what was is a new thing under the sun, unknown to most people and to all pigeons. To see America as history, to conceive of destiny as a becoming, to smell a hickory tree through the still lapse of ages, all these things are possible for us, and to achieve them takes only the free sky and the will to ply our wings. In these things, and not in Mr. Bush's bombs and Mr. DuPont's nylons, lies objective evidence of our superiority over the beasts. So I'm switching now, thinking about the ode to, uh, to the pigeon written by Leopold. Um, you know, just think about that, that, you know, somebody who was born in the late 1800s lived until the mid 1900s, you know, was, was basically alive to see the demise of a three to five billion species, um, population sized species, you know, right towards, you know, right towards just like a couple decades of his life. Think about, you know, you know, the kind of impact that would have on somebody that studies these kinds of things. So Leopold wrote that probably in 1947, maybe 1948. About 47 years later, a book came out. The book is called The Sixth Extinction. It's written by Richard Leakey, who's a paleo, um, well, he's a paleoanthropologist and a conservationist. He co-authored it with Roger Lewin, who's an evolutionary biologist and ecologist. So they wrote a book that talked about this thing that we'll talk about that they termed the sixth extinction. 19 years later, a book came out in 2014. Guess what its title is? The Sixth Extinction. So yes, two books, almost 20 years apart, same title. This book was written by Elizabeth Colbert, who's a New Yorker writer. So not a scientist, but somebody who became fascinated with this thing that now has its own name called mass extinction or the sixth extinction. So what's been happening over the, uh, over the last you know, decade or so, our, our scientists are starting to put numbers to what people have sensed for the last several decades. And that's that species are like going extinct at a rate unlike none, none other time that, that we're aware of. So we are in what's called the Holocene, and um, some people are now calling it the Anthropocene, um, anthro, you know, for, for human or man. And so this extinction now is ha has, a, has a, um, a few different nicknames. Some call it just the mass extinction, some are calling it the sixth extinction, the sixth mass extinction, the Holocene extinction, some are calling it the Anthropocene extinction. But here's what we're talking about. There's this thing that is now something that, that, that um, scientists with some, some level of precision um, uh, are, are, is called the, uh, the normal background rate of extinction. And so, you know, in, in the course of evolution, extinction of a species, it's totally normal. It's totally, totally, that's how evolution happens. It happens through extinction, it happens through speciation, and it largely happens through species that then mutate into something else that becomes a favorable trait that gets passed on and on and on to the point where it can become a new species. And so it, there, you know, Darwin was the, you know, there were others, but Darwin is generally the one that's, that's, uh, that's credited with um, really like putting to paper what this evolutionary process was all about, how amazing it is. 
But think about the Earth for a second. Our Earth's about four and a half billion years old. Um, the, the Earth, maybe after a billion or so years, gave rise on, on its waters to the ability for life to kind of come, come into play. So single-celled organisms floating on the water, early precursors of algae, you know, started to form on the water, you know, when the, when the Earth was still relatively young, um, although it had a good billion or so years under its belt. And then, and then from that time, evolution has just, has just like taken off ever since. And so, you know, as plants begot other plants, plants were able to take the oxygen, I'm sorry, they were able to take the carbon dioxide out of the, out of the skies at the time. And at that time, there was a, there was a load of it, you know, in, in the relatively young earth. They were able to take the H2O from the water that they, that, that they were floating on and do the, uh, the scientific miracle called photosynthesis using the energy of the sun. And every time plants begat new plants, there was an excess of oxygen that was, that, that was tossed back into the atmosphere and they were able to produce sugar for themselves. So plants, as they got stronger, produced more plants. The more plants you had, the more plants you had because they would just, they, would, they continued to multiply. As they multiplied, mutations took, took hold and then you know, species diversification was able to take place. The more green plants you had, the more oxygen you had. The more oxygen you had, the more conducive to life our earth became. So you know, for then the next three billion years, you just had, you know, like d diversity became the thing. Well, scientists looking back at time note that five different times there was a natural catastrophe-like event that struck the earth in some capacity and it's, and it's, and it's striking the earth was, was so strong that it made like a large percentage of the species on earth go extinct all at one time. So that event was known as a mass, a mass extinction event. So five different times that naturally occurred. The most recent was about 65 million years ago. That's the you know, event where you know, some people say that a, a meteor struck in, the, in some area of Mexico, um, there might have, um, and, and it spurred you know, all kinds of volcanic activity, all kinds of gaseous activity. Whatever actually happened, it was again, it was a natural event. 65 million years ago, and a great number of species, dinosaurs included, went extinct. But just like the prior four big extinction events, after the fifth mass extinction, the Earth came back more diverse than ever before. And so for 65 million years, evolution on Earth just became more biodiverse and more biodiverse. Right into the start of modern times, there were more species on Earth, I'm talking numbers of species on Earth, than at any other time. And so, so Earth was just proliferating with, with abundance of species. And then, but sometime around, again, let's put our, let's just term it around 1900 or something. It might have been, it, 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 um, definitely forces were in play before that. But sometime, sometime during our modern times, um, uh, Industrial Revolution was, had, a, had a big thing to do with this. Species we now realize started to plummet in their numbers and their diversity, and so um, so back to this thing called a um, a, ba a baseline extinction rate or a background rate of, um, of of extinctions. And so you know scientists realize ha have realized that extinction is normal. Um, you know one one way that they they characterized um, a typical background extinction rate was for mammals, and it would have been normal in in, in pre industrial revolution times that you might get two mammal species out of 10,000 species going extinct about every 100 years. So a couple, a couple mammal species basically disappearing every, every, every 100 years. On the speciation side of things, you would, that, the, the, that rate would be a lot higher um, than just two. So the balance of, 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 of species becoming new species um, and species disappearing or becoming extinct, the balance was always in favor of increases in biodiversity. Well, that's all, that's all shifted. And now different studies you know, um, over the last like five to 10 years are, are, are suggesting with, with, with certainty, by the way, um, that 
that the normal background rates have increased a lot. Now, the, where the certainty is a little bit off is what's, what's the order of magnitude. So some estimates are that it's 100 times higher than the, than the, uh, than the background rate of extinction. Others are saying it's 1,000 times higher. Other people are saying that it's even higher than a thousand times the, the you know the the, uh, the background extinction rate, but but regardless of, of however you look at it, species extinction is like among us, and it's among us in a huge way, and it's among us in a way that uh, unlike the prior five extinctions, it was kicked off by ourselves. So it's 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 something to to consider, and we had a warning about it. We've had numerous warnings, but, but the passenger pigeon and what happened with that, that's one species. But what happened to that one species has been happening to all kinds of amphibians, all kinds of mammals, all kinds of reptiles, all kinds of insects. And it's been happening now for a couple centuries. And now we're realizing, wow, we are in a free fall, a free fall of, of, of losing species. One of the reasons why it's really hard to pinpoint what that what our current extinction rate is, is because while we've managed to name with species names, most of the relatively speaking larger um, animals and plants, there's still many, many, many species that have not even yet been discovered and given species names. Tons of things that swim in the ocean have not really, have not even yet been discovered. There's in Central America and South America, there are amphibians that have literally come and gone, meaning they've become extinct and no one has ever discovered them or put a um, or put a species name to them. So, you know, scientists have only named a fraction of all the living things on earth, especially when you consider microorganisms that live in places like the soil and oceans and other systems that, that, that are a little bit more remote than just us looking on the land to find things. So mass extinction is, is it's among us, it's real and it's huge. It's also the thing that made me go from the, for, the non, the, I'm sorry, the for-profit side of things as a restoration ecologist to starting, you know, the, the, uh, the nonprofit that I run, which is called um, Land Health Institute. So I want to shift our thinking to another species, one that we can sort of um, think about. I want to open it with some notes that I scribbled. It's kind of the start of like a, of something that maybe I'll put into a writing, but bear with me. Um, and it'll kind of get us into the current in, in, into the current day, especially because it's July and this thing I'm going to talk about, we should start seeing it a lot, hopefully. So the title of my, uh, my, my little essay notes here is called The Perfect Sculpture. So there's this sculpture. It's made by nature. Midsummer, you can find one pretty easily if you just know where to look. Most often, you can find it hanging. You can hang it um, often hanging from the underside of the leaf of a milkweed plant, but you can also find one hanging from most anything that serves as an overhang, be it an eave, the underside of an outdoor table or shelf, a branch, generally as long as one of these overhangs is fairly close um, to, a, uh, to the existence of a milkweed or two. The shape of the sculpture is distinctive. To a shell collector, the step-down upper portion may evoke an image of a common or channeled whelk, you know, a seashell that you might find on the beach. To a meteorologist, the overall image may resemble a stocky tornado. When it's new, the sculpture is a brilliant milky green color, similar to the luster of a piece of light green jade. Look closely, you'll see flecks of gold on it. Yes, gold. If you're moved to touch the sculpture, do so gingerly, as you'll find it to be very soft. The perfect sculpture is a changing one. Spot one when it's older and its skin is metallic, blue-black, like gunmetal. Look closely and through the armor, you'll see trans, uh, which is translucent at that as it's become, and you'll see something orange veined with black. Return your focus to the skin of the sculpture and there you'll still see those flecks of gold. Yes, gold. Touch it now and it's rigid and hard. Some days pass, you return to your sculpture and it's blue-black no more. No, it's been blown open at the bottom. 
It's empty, hollow, nearly devoid of color. Wonder-laced realization sets in. Um, this realized wonder stabs your brain. It was alive, a house of life. It was, it was, um, it basically housed, housed a living thing. And such change it was. In two short weeks, milky green became metallic black. Yellow turned orange. Soft became hard. And more, much, much more. Eight stumpy legs became six legs of slender length. Leaf-chewing mouth parts transformed into a flexible needle-like structure called a proboscis designed for sucking nectar. Vision became keener, eyes much larger. Copious fatty body mass gave way to lightweight wings of power. An insect GPS was miraculously wired so that now this thing called a butterfly could fly successfully from Philadelphia all the way to Mexico. <clears throat> so I've, I've kind of just been playing around with some words, but really what I just described is the, the miracle of the monarch, the monarch butterfly. And it's an amazing, amazing animal, this tiny little insect called the monarch. Um, the sense of wonder for throughout the, the entire United States mainland um, is easy to behold. Any state in the US, um, you, can, you, can find, you, know, you can find the yellow, black, and white caterpillar crawling on a milkweed plant, and you can see flying around almost anywhere um, you know, the, the, what we would hope to be the ubiquitous um, orange and black butterfly really coming into play right around this time of year, July, August into September. Um, <clears throat> so there's strong, strong connection between, you know, an insect like that and humans. Th this insect is so plentiful that you can, if, if, you, if you know how to look for the caterpillar without doing any harm to it, go find it. You'll find it on most likely um, crawling on a uh, milkweed plant. Learn what a milkweed plant looks like. Snip off some leaves of that milkweed. Get some kind of a screen-like structure. Put your caterpillar in that. Put your leaves in that. Let your caterpillar frolic in the little cage that you give it so that you can just kind of observe. Make sure if those leaves dry out that you, that you get that caterpillar some, some, fresh, some fresh leaves to, to munch on. What you'll find is as long as that structure has like the equivalent of an overhang, but something like a, like a ceiling, at some point you're going to see that caterpillar climb up to the top. It's going to hang down upside down in the form of a J. And then what's going to happen is this amazing metamorphosis where, where that caterpillar basically does its last skin shed, which gets modified into a what's called a chrysalis. And, you know, and then you, for about two weeks, you can watch this chrysalis go from a J-like caterpillar to that milky green structure that I talked about to where it get, becomes a translucent blue black metallic looking structure where you can kind of look through and you can see what are the wings of the butterfly. And then at some point when you, 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 you might wake up in the morning and you look into your little monarch house and Lo and behold, probably on the floor of this little structure, you see this wet winged, shiny orange and black, beautiful butterfly um, that has just emerged from its chrysalis. If you want to enjoy it for a couple days, get a tissue or something and dip and, and dip it into sugar water. Put that in, you know, make, you know, put that into the uh, into your little modified cage. And you'll see this, you know, as this butterfly dries out his or her wings, you'll see it unfurl its, uh, its proboscis into your little tissue paper of, um, of, of sugary sweetness. And, and what he or she will be doing is sucking that out because the food that it, that it ate before is no longer like, like hard to digest leaves of milkweed. It's now become sugar um, from just about any, any flower that can, that, that'll produce nectar. So that's pretty cool. And we can all do that in our house. We can enjoy that butterfly 
kind of just getting her wings dried for a day or so. And then we can go back outside and let her go and watch her fly away. And if we're in Philly, um, there's, there's a really, really good chance that that butterfly is going to make its way all the way to the forests of Mexico, um, you know, where, where it'll, it'll, it'll later die there, but spawn some other monarchs that are going to make their way back as far north as, as southern Canada. And that's a miracle. So there's, there's, there's an amazing, amazing story around the monarch. You can get a book it's called Starting Life Butterfly. It was written quite a while ago before the problem that is, has now beset monarchs. It's written by Claire Llewellyn, illustrated by Simon Mendez. The book is meant for kids, but it has these really cool pictures that kind of walk you through not just the metamorphosis of the butterfly, the, the caterpillar into the butterfly, but it, but it hints at what, what's called monarch milkweed ecology. So as fascinating as what I just described is, equally or if not more fascinating, is the, is the ecology that has evolved around the strategy of how monarchs have become so prevalent. So a monarch caterpillar will only eat milkweed leaves, okay? Milkweed is a plant that's quite plentiful. There's a lot of different species of it. There's tropical species in Mexico, there's, there's temperate species up in our, in our area of the woods. I, I, I'm sorry, of a, well, yeah, the, the, it, it could be the woods, it could be fields. But it basically, there's milk, milkweed on its own, grows throughout the United States, and it grows plentifully. Milkweed is poisonous. If you pull apart, if you just kind of pull a leaf off of a milkweed, you're going to see the plant bleed a latexy white milky substance. Well, it's not poisonous to everything and everyone. But, mo but most, be most living things will stay away from it. Well, the caterpillar is adapted to eat the milkweed. Um, so when, when the uh, monarch butterfly lays her eggs on a, on a milkweed plant, basically the caterpillars that emerge from those eggs, they basically have a monopoly on that plant. Very few other things go to that plant and, 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 and compete with it to eat the leaves. Caterpillar just binges on the leaves. It grows from this tiny little thing to like a very like long, you know, few inch, you know, chubby structure um, of, of, of an animal, just munching away with reckless abandon on the poisonous milkweed leaves. Um, so, so that takes place on the plant as, as, and, and the, uh, as, as the uh, caterpillar basically gets, gets the nutrients and the strength that it needs to go through this, this energy-laden process called metamorphosis. So here's, here's some of the ecology that's built into that. So the metamorphosis takes place and out comes a, um, a monarch butterfly. Now the monarch butterfly comes out and the butterfly no longer is a plant eater. It's a, it's a, it's a sugar sucker. It's a nectar sucker from flowers. So whereas the, uh, in, its, in its larval state, the caterpillar is only going to eat plants, and it's only going to eat leaves, and it's only going to eat the leaves of a, um, you know, of a, uh, of, of a milkweed plant. So basically, it's a specificist, right? It's, it's it's specific to that plant. It's evolved to eat that plant. Um, it's quite a strategy for something that has weed in its in its name, indicating that it's a pretty um, pre uh, prevalent plant. Well, the the monarch butterfly has now become a gener generalist. And she needs her Gatorade to fly long, long distances. Think about this. You know, how could a butterfly the size of a couple, the weight of a couple grams, make its way over a thousand miles? You know, from you know the northern part of the United States all the way down to Canada, I mean, to, to Mexico. It's quite a feat. Well, um, she's very lean. She's very muscular. Not a lot of body fat left on that thing. And so basically, she becomes a, a consumer of carbs, a consumer of sugar. But while the milkweed flowers provide that nectar if, 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 uh, if he or she so chooses, so do just about any other flower. So, the, so then the monarch butterfly is able to, to just generalize and, and is not reliant um, for his or her own um, well-being on, on any one kind of plant. It could be any kind of plant, you know, with, flower, you know, with flowers and bloom. So, so, that's, so that's, that's part of the strategy. 
um, around this plant. Hold that for a second. The plant's not just about the milkweed and the monarch. A whole ecology has, could be studied around this, this, this wonderful plant called a milkweed. Um, aphids are one of the kinds of insects that actually can um, be on this plant. They like to hang out on the stem and aphids are little, they're kind, they're basically sap suckers. They can, they'll go in and they'll suck some of the juices of the plant, sweet stuff, and that's, and that's what they eat. When aphids um, defecate or urinate, because it's kind of a combination, it has this, this, you know, this, this really nice name called honeydew. But it's also, it's called honeydew for one reason, because it's sweet. So basically their waste is a sweet product. And get this, ants, which are some of the most like, like, predatory creatures out there, ants might be small, but they'll, they're, they're, they're not a fight, afraid to fight. They're, um, you know, they're, they're, they're predators, they often need aphids. But on the milkweed plant, they view the honeydew as a treat. So the ants associated with that milkweed plant will fight off other predators that might come to eat the aphids because the ants want the aphids to keep sucking out the nectar, which they can't, which the ants will, will find the plant poisonous, but they don't find the honeydew poisonous. So there's this whole ant aphid thing going there. You could look in the book I just talked about, or you can just kind of just you know gaze at a plant. You'll see a couple different black and red um, bugs on on most typical milkweed plants. One might be a uh, a milkweed um, something called a milkweed bug. There's also something called a red milkweed beetle. There's a there's a um, there's a, there's a uh, a predator that likes to that, that will occasionally eat the um, the caterpillar. And it's called an assassin bug, get that. Um, there's tachinid flies, there's brachinid wasps. A brachinid wasp will lay eggs on a caterpillar, get this, the caterpillar, the, the, the eggs of the wasp will then cannibalize the caterpillar as they emerge. So all of this stuff goes, goes on in like, just like in wondrous fashion in connection with the fact that you have these plentiful um, milkweed plants all around. The metamorphosis I already described. It's just a, it's just an amazing thing. In two weeks, sometimes less, all of that change happens. Where this the, you know this stubby, you know chubby, cute caterpillar turns into this beautiful winged creature that eats totally different, has vision that's totally different, has legs that are totally different, makes its way you know far far away in a migratory um, pattern that's somehow wired into its, into its small, tiny little brain. So go figure, again, an amazing miracle that's taking place here. And then again, there's that migration. Um, some birds can fly from as far as South, South America to North, North America, and it, and it, which, is, which is quite, quite a you know, miracle unto itself. Um, the idea of, a, of an insect doing it like that you know, when you think about that, it's just, again, it's, it's kind of hard to believe. Um, but again, this is an insect that um, in its height would number somewhere maybe up to around a billion. So compare that to the three to five billion of passenger pigeons. Um, it, there might, it might have been more in some days, but when you look, when you look it up, that's kind of what the, what the estimated numbers have been. But the sad, sad thing is that in the last 10 or 20 years, the, the monarch butterfly numbers have been plummeting. As much as 80% of monarch populations have, have, have basically disappeared. And so it, there may well be a major extinction event of this single species um, that's, uh, that, that's taking place. And so, um, you know, it's, it's as if the passenger pigeon tried to do us a favor and we didn't listen. So here we are with this ubiquitous bug, this beautiful winged thing that you can capture from, if you, ha if you have a common milkweed growing in your backyard, um, you, could, you, can, you can take that, you can take it, bring it in your house, watch it turn into this amazing thing and let it go. And that might become a thing of the past. So I just kind of wanted to take that to, to, through, to a final stage and, and, and kind of like open up my own mind to you um, and kind of like share with you like the, the ecosystem of, of my mind. Because I look at these kinds of things, the passenger pigeon and its demise, the beautiful words of Leopold. Um, and now in, our, in front of our very eyes and faces, you know, the monarch butterfly 
has, has now provoked the forming of all kinds of nonprofits that are all about saving the monarch. And, um, and so, so here we are scrambling to save the species. And, um, you know, and, I'm, and I'm saying as an ecologist, well, is that really what the butterfly is telling us? And I don't think so. I think that the butterfly is, is not necessarily saying save, save the species. It's different. It's, it's the, the, really the message is save the ecosystem. You know, it's not just about the single species. It's about, it's about the system, right? It's, it, it, there, there's way more than just the monarch, as we just learned. It's, it's, about, it's, about the, uh, it's about the milkweed. It's about all the other things that make use of that milkweed. It's about the evolution that's taken place over all these years. It's not necessarily just about wildlife biology. It's really about ecology. And so, you know, there's this, there's this modified modern science slash design discipline called landscape ecology. For several years now, I've taught an introductory class in landscape ecology. And um, landscape ecology is one of the tools that can really tell us what's going on here. And it can also give us like some of the keys to what we do about it. So a monarch butterfly would make for a great landscape ecologist because landscape ecology is all about the view from above. A drone can do it too. So in landscape ecology, you study um, different types of land. Landscape ecology looks, looks at, our, at our earth in, in kind of a mosaic fashion and says, what are the patterns here and what are those patterns telling us? If there's a whole lot of something, that whole lot of something is called the matrix. If there's a smaller amount of something within, within that matrix, it's called a patch. So if the prevalent landscape that you're looking at and, you're, and you're, where you're so lucky is Eastern deciduous forest, the forest is the matrix. And if somebody decides to put a neighborhood within the forest, but the neighborhood is a lot smaller than that forest, the neighborhood patch within, within, within the matrix. Well, unfortunately, the reverse kind of is what has happened where you know, so much of our landscapes have been turned into human uses first, so that the matrix becomes something that was human created and the patch becomes what's left of nature. So think about that for a second. Our biome, our natural dominant ecosystem in Pennsylvania should be Eastern deciduous forest. If you travel across Pennsylvania, you might, you might come to a lot of preserved forests, but you also notice that there's a whole lot of farmland between Philly and Pittsburgh if you take you know, something like the uh, Pennsylvania Turnpike. So land use, you know, it has turned into basic farm. And so a, a landscape ecologist that takes note of that. So, um, and, a, and a landscape ecologist looking down and then doing some studies realizes that 41% of, of the United States land has been turned into farmland, okay? That's, now there's gonna be differing percentages on that but a lot of reputable sources basically equate that, um, that almost half of the land that, uh, that makes up the United States has been turned into cropland on which we grow a single species of crop. Corn and soybean generally lead the list, okay? So let's think about that for a second. We've taken our forests in the east, you know, east of the Mississippi, when you get into the central part of the United States, we've taken our prairies. And basically, almost half of that has been converted to just one single use called agriculture. And so um, putting, getting some handle on the numbers, Pennsylvania as a state is about 45,000 square miles. Well, here's the land that's, that's leased for the purposes of gas and oil production is about 40,000 square miles. So hold that 40, like 40% 40 of our land, you know it's, it's crop land. Well, in addition to that, another, another state-like size um, piece of land, if you added it all up, is just devoted for like drilling purposes and extraction of oil and gas. 
corn convert that, that's used to produce another kind of um, fossil fuel, or actually substitute fossil fuel, ethanol, 34,000 square miles of the United States is used for that corn purpose. So that's what we're doing with our land. Now, what do we do on farmland? Well, we grow a single crop. How do we grow a single crop? Well, we have to manage. We can get into a whole other discussion about <clears throat> how much water is used for irrigation on that, but that, but again, that, you know, save that for another day. But what we are really good at is inventing chemicals that can kill anything we don't want other than the crop that we do want. So herbicide in mass, mass, mass abundance is sprayed over the fields, the crop fields. And the, the miracle of those um, herbicides are that they can kill all the plants, a lot of times the broad-leafed, they're called broad-leafed herbicides, that, that surround the corn crop. Well, what's a milkweed plant? A milkweed has a broad leaf. Milkweed is viewed as a weed by, by farmers all over the place. It just gets killed with all the other unwanted weeds that, that, make, you know, that, 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 that would otherwise compete with the corn or the soybean that we're growing. So chemicals being sprayed in abundance are killing the only plant that the caterpillar, the monarch caterpillar can eat. And so think about that, you know, where, if you kill all those plants, where's the monarch adult gonna lay her eggs? If, if she happens to lay her eggs somewhere and, and they've only evolved, they, take, they, they put all their evolution strategy into evolving how to eat this poisonous plant, but if that poisonous plant isn't around, they're not adapted yet to eat anything else. So they're just not gonna grow. They're just, so she, if she happens to lay the eggs, so be it, the eggs aren't gonna, they're not gonna turn into anything, they're just gonna die. So that's what's going on. Um, we've taken land for our own purposes and we've converted into something else. And the last thing I kinda wanna leave you with is something that a lot of us can, can relate to. Um, you know, Americans are often creatures that like to copy what our European ancestors did and thought was valuable. So the whole concept of the lawn in the United States is a social phenomenon unto itself. But as large as a crop as corn is, as large as a crop as soybean is, our biggest crop is the American lawn, okay? Your grass. Kentucky bluegrass, by the way, is not native. It's not from Kentucky. It's from Europe. In places like England, um, there's a lot of grassland, short grass fields, that that it, it's well adapted to the dampness that they have there on you know throughout you know you know throughout the uh, seasons. What happens to your if you don't water your grass? What happens to it in July and August? It goes dormant. It doesn't die. It turns brown and it waits for the you know for the cooler, wetter fall days to come in. But grass is not even an, it's not even a, a, a natural native plant of ours. So get this. Different estimates abound, but NASA did a study maybe a decade or so ago. So NASA estimates that there are 63,000 square miles of lawn in the United States. So I just told you that Pennsylvania, which is a pretty big state, right? It's over 300 miles to drive from here to Pittsburgh. Um, Pennsylvania being about 45,000 square miles, there's more lawn added up in the United States than there, in, 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 to such a size larger than our own state of Pennsylvania. And so some ways that we might be able to get reconnected with this is to, to even just think about that because many, many of us, myself included, live in suburbia. And um, you know, the urban way of living is a really smart, efficient way of living. Um, suburbs are all about the lawn, okay? And so like if, if your neighborhood is typical like mine is, People pride themselves on having these nice, freshly mown, green, if they put, if they put chemicals on them, you know, carpets of lawn. Um, and, you know, it's, and, and just to kind of like share some, some uh, my own you know, personal story is, uh, you know, I live in a suburb, but I'm an ecologist. And I have the equivalent of one acre of land. 
And I, since I moved in, have, um, if it was up to me and I was the only sole member in my family, um, that acre of land by now, it would just be, basically be forest and some, and, and, and some created meadow that I have. But I have a family, I have neighbors, and I'm always playing that, that, that pressure game. This past year, and by the way, I've, I'm proud that I've converted much, much, much of my land into either, um, you know, fragment of forest or, or like, you know, or, or something called prairie or meadow. But, uh, but I live in a place where my next door neighbor tells me that my bioswales and the plants that I have growing wild on my property are bringing his property value down. Um, he says this to me while he, uh, you, you can find him in his circular driveway, um, frequently washing his, um, his Jaguar um, in a soapy mixture of you know, car shampoo or whatever you use. And where does that go? Well, that washes right down his driveway and most likely makes its way in, probably into the Wissahickon Creek if it doesn't you know, go into the uh, storm sewer first. And um, he also uh, prides himself on being the first person to put down chemical salt you know, whenever it's forecast to snow the next day. So again, not knocking him, but that's the, the mindset of a suburbanite is you got to keep your driveway clean and you should have nice, you know, freshly cropped lawn in, in, in front of your house. He also thinks that it's crazy that I chose to put a half dozen fruit trees in my front yard. He says nobody puts fruit trees in his front yard. But again, that's the suburban mentality. Um, my, my battles have come even closer to home this year. I took it upon myself this year to say, you know what? No more, uh, no more lawn service. I bought a Fiskars hand push mower. Um, got one of the best reviews out there. So basically, I'll take a few hours and I'll go around and the areas where I know my family kind of wants it to be generally lawn, I, 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 um, I, I, I push my mower there. Well, I'm now in this battle because I took a, 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 a section of my backyard and I stopped mowing. Why? Because squirrels do us all a favor and in my neighborhood, there's a lot of oak trees. And the squirrels, what do they do? They bury lots and lots of nuts and they forget where like half or three quarters of them are and they become our future oak trees. So I've, you know, so now um, my wife realizes that I was really being kind of manipulative when I said, you know what, I want to get more in touch with my land and I'm going to do a push mower because my push mower lets me go around the little tree seedlings. And so if you go to my backyard right now, you'll see all these goofy little tree seedlings cropping up all over. And then if you look to a section right behind where we put the swing set, you'll see grass that's about a foot or so high because I haven't mown it. And, um, and then you'll see like a lot of different oak plants. But now we have this battle because um, my wife and, and some others don't think that it looks really good. Why am I bringing this up? It's, it's, to, it's to encourage us all to have what's called an ecosystem mentality. If, um, if we put a little more ecosystem in our backyard, included in that, um, you know, milkweed plants, um, we, we, will, we will then um, be creating little patches of habitat. So back to that landscape ecology thing. So go flying back above the, the globe, all right? We're flying over the United States and we're seeing, wow, almost half the land is farmland. Whoa, look at all those lawns. Look at all that suburban sprawl. Um, that's what the, the dominant land type is. There's another term in landscape ecology and it's called a corridor. A corridor is simply a thing that connects. A road is a corridor, connects one place with another. But now that we've made our dominant landscapes that were here naturally first, like Eastern deciduous forest and prairie, we've turned them into patches. Now it's really important that we provide green corridors to connect those. Well, a green corridor could be a stream and the, and the land around the stream. A green corridor could also be our backyards. So think about that a little bit when, when you think in terms of, you know, what could we do? But when you take it back to, you know, this passenger pigeon, what was the passenger pigeon trying to tell us? Well, the passenger pigeon was saying, well, if you wipe out the Eastern deciduous forest where we eat all our acorns, and then you take, a, take shotguns and you shoot us out of the sky 50,000 at a time, there's only so much of that that we can take. But we're not the only other species that, 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 that's, gonna, that's gonna react that way. Um, you know, look, if, if we can go extinct and we have 3 billion or 5 billion of us, you know, other things that are less plentiful, they can certainly go extinct. We didn't get the message. Monarchs are telling us the same thing. But let's take it beyond the monarch. Um, yes, we wanna save the monarch, 
but we we need to save our ecosystems because if you know as, as if the milkweed plant goes like it's going the monarchs aren't the only things that are going to go if our ecosystems go we're going to continue to have this crash and that's and, and and you know and what's so what's their true endangered species you can go to a list and find the endangered species you can times that by a thousand because there's other species that are not yet on the list like the eastern box turtle should be on that list and, and other species like that that's not the problem the endangered species is is our, is is natural habitat and we really need to be thinking about that you know the endangered species is not having enough wetland habitat not having enough um, forest habitat not having enough pr prairie habitat but you can really start thinking about things um, in, in your own house and even if you have a windowsill, you can always put a you can always put a mini ecosystem there. So that's what I want to leave you with that 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 ecosystem of my mind, hopefully going to to your mind into spurring some ecosystem thinking about stuff that that really gets us you know that was really spurred by the the uh, the, the poor demise of the uh, passenger pigeon.